will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away the wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. And then would you go to, with me to chapter 2, verse 1. This is Hannah, her celebration of the birth of her son Samuel. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come uh, to this story of Hannah and her barrenness, of your gift to her, of her song in response to you. And as we consider this passage, would you let us lead it, lead us to your son? Would you let us see here 
the power of the gospel, the power of your work through Jesus and its implications for this coming week. Would you help us by your Holy Spirit to understand, to respond, to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to humbly receive your word. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said before, I was a music major in college, and I was a very dedicated music major. I spent the vast majority of my life in uh, those practice rooms, not too far from here. And um, I was thinking about our college kids traveling home and being home for Christmas uh, this year. And I remember going at Christmas to visit my family. Um, My parents are both from families, they have like five siblings, and so I have tons of aunts and uncles and cousins, and they all live in Lakeland, Florida, and we would travel down there every Christmas. And I remember during college going down there, and my aunts and uncles and my grandparents would ask me how life was going, and I would tell them about all that I was doing in the music school and uh, all the hours that I was spending practicing and, and working and being in ensemble rehearsals and things like that. And they would say, that's great, uh, but they wouldn't let it stop there uh, because they felt uh, that necessity that aunts and uncles and grandparents seemed to feel uh, to ask about my social life and uh, especially about my romantic life. And they would always ask, well, is there a girl? Are you dating anyone? Do you have a girlfriend? And, um, and I would say, no, I'm spending way too much time in the practice rooms. And, um, and they would say, you know what, Jonathan, it's great that, um, that you're working really hard at school and what you're doing, uh, but you need to make sure you have a life outside of that. Or more bluntly, they would say, Jonathan, you need to get a life. <laughs> and part of that is, is just really good-natured teasing, But part of that reveals very serious questions about what it means to live. What it means to have a life. Many of my, of course, my family comes from a kind of a more traditional approach. And so to have a life was to uh, get a stable job and get married and have three or four-ish kids. And they wanted to make sure that I got a life. But what does that mean? I think we all sense that living is more than merely breathing. That living is more than just mere survival. And having life means more than that. But what does that mean? What does that look like? And where do we find it? That question is at the heart of this chapter. Where is life? It's at the heart of this chapter, it's at the heart of this book, and I think in many ways it's at the heart of the Bible. Where is life? What does it mean to have life? And so I want to look at this narrative of Hannah and her family. Uh, And it's a narrative not only about Hannah and her family, but about all of God's people, the nation of Israel. And I want us to ask two questions of of this story. Two questions. Where do we find life? And what kind of life do we find? Where do we find life? And when we find that life, what does it look like? What kind of life do we find? So first of all, where do we find life? Hannah lived at a time where having a life meant basically three things. It meant safety from your enemies. And it meant lots of food and lots of babies. 
Okay, that's what it meant during this time of history and this particular culture to have a life. So obviously Hannah, in dealing with her barrenness, had to deal with the question, where am I going to find life? And, and I think we can feel her sorrow. We can feel her question. Because we might not live in a culture that values children as highly as Hannah's culture did, but we know the sadness, and many of you have experienced the sadness of barrenness, of struggles with fertility, or you know people who struggle with that, and you know that it is a deep sorrow. It's a deep ache. It raises deep questions. And so Hannah had to deal with those questions, and she had to figure out where she was going to find life. Now, most people around her uh, would have gone to what we call a fertility God. This was the case even with God's people. And even though God had said, you shall not worship other gods, at this time in history, the common practice was, if you're dealing with barrenness in some way, you go to a fertility God. And there were two really common fertility gods. The first one uh, was Baal, is the way we say it. It's probably Baal is the correct pronunciation. But Baal was the god of fertility for the land. So if you had a barren field, if you needed crops, you went to Baal. He was the god of the storm. He was god of the rain. And if you needed life that way, you would go and perform rituals and ask him to help you. And Baal had a girlfriend uh, and her name was Asherah. Uh, this was a goddess. And where Baal was fertility of the land, Asherah was fertility of the womb, among other things. And so if you were struggling, as Hannah was, with barrenness, uh, with wanting a fertility of the womb, you would go to Asherah and you would do these different rituals in these high places and there was a pole and all sorts of things you would do to try uh, to get Asherah to help you uh, have babies. And so for Hannah's context for her culture, even the culture of God's people. That was the way you found life. That's how you answer the question, where do you get a life? Because you go to the Baal, you go to Asherah. And this is why God's people were struggling so much at this point in history. Uh, The book of Judges is the context for the beginning of the book of Samuel. And the book of Judges is just one disaster after another. Because God's people were looking for life in Baal, in Asherah, and in all these other false gods. But Hannah was different, wasn't she? She went in a different direction than her culture. Traveling is a big part of this chapter. If you read the chapter as a whole, this first chapter, you'll see this family going back and forth to Shiloh. And that's an important detail to notice, because when we read 1 Samuel chapter 1, we go immediately to Hannah's prayer, right? It's compelling, it's, it's emotional, it's strange in some ways. And, and we kind of focus there and, and we think, well, maybe I should be as emotional as Hannah was. And it's so emotional, the pastor thinks I'm drunk, right? That's the, that's the point here. Or, or we think about this, this is, is she making a deal with God? Is she negotiating with God? What's going on with that? But that is to miss a larger point. The way this story is structured, the way the storyteller tells the story, he places the emphasis not on how Hannah prays, but where she prays. 
Where does she pray? Where does she take her desire for life? She takes it to Shiloh. And Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was at this point in Israel's history. And the tabernacle was the center of Israel's worship. And it was the center of their worship because it represented God's presence with them. So when God created a relationship with Abraham and his family, the central commitment of that relationship that God made to this group of people was, I will be with you. I will live with you. I will work for you. And he says that to them as he makes promises to Abraham. And then he shows that promise to them with the tabernacle and later the temple. In Jerusalem, the tabernacle was the expression of God's love, his care, his commitment to be with his people. And so as Hannah travels to Shiloh, as she takes all of her tears and sadness and desires to the tabernacle, she is saying, this is where life is. Life is is in the presence of God. It's not in all the rituals of Baal and Asherah. It is in the promise that God will be with His people. And we see it not only in the traveling of this chapter, but in the contrast of verses 10 and 18. Verse 10, Hannah is weeping bitterly. Right? Verse 18, what's different? It says her face was no longer sad. What happened in the middle there? Did she have a baby? Did she conceive a child? No. What caused that change was that she was in the presence of God and she had heard the word of God through Eli. And that is where life is found. In the presence of God. That is life. Now that creates a problem for us because we don't have Shiloh, right? Uh, I think most of us would understand that this particular building, the old green derby, has no unique connection to the presence of God. And no church facility has that sort of unique connection to God and His presence. And so we have to ask Well, if life is found in the presence of God, then how do we find the presence of God? Where is this life-giving presence found? And to answer that question, we just have to keep following the story. And we have to follow the story to Hannah's son Samuel and, and realize that the central act of Samuel's life was to anoint a king. And that king's name was David. And we have to follow the story of David and his sons and all their ups and downs that will lead us to the greatest descendant of David. As Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Jesus, the son of David. And did, did you notice the connection between the song of Hannah in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel and the song of Mary that we read earlier in the service? Luke, as he connects us to that prayer, to that song, is saying, hear the echoes. That where Hannah found life in the presence of God, 
This is where you now find life. Not in the temple, in the tabernacle, in Shiloh, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And what does the angel tell Joseph that Jesus will be called? They'll name him Jesus, but he gave him another name as well, right? He'll be called Emmanuel. And what does that mean? It means that promise that God spoke to Abraham. It means God with us. The life-giving presence of God is found in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is where we go to find life. Where will you look for life this week? There aren't a lot of Baal and Asherah worshipers around these days. But we still have our fertility gods, right? They have names like accomplishment, wealth, Education, romance, fun, pleasure. Things that we think will give us that meaningful life that we were made for, that we long for. I was reminded of this this week, actually yesterday. Um, I decided yesterday afternoon um, that I needed some sugar in my life. And, uh, and so I walked into our kitchen and we have a, a bar area and underneath that bar area are some cabinets. And, and I squatted down and opened those cabinets because I knew in those cabinets were peppermint patties. And uh, peppermint patties are uh, some of my wife's favorite candy. And so I, as a sacrificial husband, buy them for her and then eat most of them. Um, okay, so I squatted down and I pulled out one. I opened the package and I ate it. And then I pulled out another and I stood up and opened the package and ate it. And, and then I, I thought to myself, why did I just do that? Why did I eat one squatted down behind? the? And I realized it's because I wanted just to think I only ate one when I actually ate two. Why? Because I look for life in other people's opinion of me. And that's a silly example, it's a small example, but it illustrates a profound truth about how our hearts work. Is that we look for life in all these other places. Instead of going to the presence of God that we find in Jesus Christ. But Hannah, as she takes all of her desperation to Shiloh, we can look back on that in faith after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can see her leading us to Christ. Leading us to, main, to, the, to that manger. To the cross. To the empty tomb. Because that is where life is found. Where will you look for life this week? Where will you look for life this coming year? As you deal with family and, and all that busyness and craziness that goes into this time of year, where will you look for life? Now, this raises a second question for us. Uh, Because if life is found in Jesus, if He is the location of the life-giving presence of God, what does that mean? Uh, What does it look like to find life in Him? Uh, What should we expect as we come and look uh, for life in Jesus Christ? What kind of life... Do we, find, do we find in Him? Well, consider Hannah's prayer. Let's, let's consider this prayer now. And when we read this, I think our first 
inclination is, is to think of Hannah as going to a used car lot, right? Because a used car lot is the one place still in our society where we expect to barter, where we expect to negotiate a price. And I think when we initially read this, we think of Hannah as going to God uh, as some kind of used car salesman and negotiating with God to get what she wants. All right? If you would just give me a son. She seems to be making a deal with God. But there's a problem with that because it's a really bad deal. Because she says, what? If you give me a son, then I'm going to give me back to you. That's like saying... To the car salesman, you give me the car and then you can drive it and I won't use it at all, right? And so Hannah is doing something more than bartering with God. She is, she is approaching God differently than that. And what she does is she commits this potential son uh, to a Nazarite vow. And this is in verse 11 when she says a razor will not touch his head. Uh, she is committing her son uh, to a Nazarite vow. And we learn about this vow in Numbers chapter 6. And what it is, is a ritual that, that people would go through if they were committing themselves to a special job for God. Okay, So especially soldiers and priests would take the Nazarite vow. It was a symbol of of commitment to God's purposes, of commitment to God's mission. So if God says to the army, I need you to go and do this, then sometimes the soldiers would take this Nazarite vow to show their commitment to what God had told them to do. So you see what Hannah's doing in her prayer? Do you see that Hannah wants more than just a son? She wants a mission. She doesn't just want to get something from God. By connecting to this Nazarite vow, she shows that she wants to participate in what God is doing in His people and in the world. She wanted to be a part of God's work. It wasn't just about having this cute little baby bee that she could cuddle. It was about participating in the mission of God. And this is confirmed by this prayer, this song in chapter 2. It's a really strange song to sing after a baby is born, right? This is no lullaby. Uh, she sings about bows being shattered. She sings about enemies being defeated. She sings about judgment, about war, about kings. Right? This is no lullaby, lullaby. Right? This, is, this is more a song that you would sing after winning a battle than after having a baby. Why? Because Hannah sees herself and her desire for a child as a way to participate in God's work, as a way to belong to what God is doing in His people in the world. And if you follow the story, this is exactly what happens with Samuel in his leadership of God's people and his anointing of King David, who leads God's people in victory over their enemies. Who establishes justice. Who is God's chosen 
uh, to, to rule over his people in righteousness. In other words, Hannah did not simply want life from God. She wanted a life for God. She did not just want to receive a gift. She wanted to participate in God's mission and in his work. We were watching, we saw just a little bit of the Ohio State-Michigan game a few weeks ago on Rivalry Saturday. And uh, our, our family lived in Columbus, Ohio uh, for about five years. And I know the intensity of that rivalry. Um, it, it's crazy. I mean, I've been around a lot of rivalries, Florida State-Florida, Georgia-Florida, Georgia-Georgia Tech. Um, and, and it really is hard to find a, a deeper hatred uh, than uh, Ohio State and Michigan. For the whole week, um, people in Columbus will not say the word Michigan. They will only say the state up north um, is how deeply seated uh, that rivalry is. And, and they showed at the beginning of this game, I don't know if anybody else saw this, they showed a, a video uh, from Ohio State Medical Center, the nursery, uh, the babies that had been born that week. And they, they panned across these babies. And instead of the normal little blue or pink hats that hospitals usually have for the babies, they were all red and gray hats that said Ohio State and, uh, and had a football on them. Okay. So, so what, was that, what is that hospital doing? <laughs> they, they are giving these babies a, a gift that involves them in something. Right? They are giving them something that leads them from their very earliest moments in life to participate in something. And that is the way God's gifts work for us. They are gifts of involvement. There's a pattern throughout the Bible that God does this when He gives someone something, He involves them in something. So, Adam and Eve, He creates them, He gives them life, and then what does He do? He tells them to multiply and to fill the earth with that life that He has given them. He involves them in that work. Abraham, He says to Abraham, I will be with you, I will bless you. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He gives him the gift of blessing, and then he says, Why am I giving you the gift of blessing? So that through you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus, when he gets to the end of his time on earth, after his death and resurrection, and he looks at his disciples, does he say to them, Here you go, enjoy the life that I have purchased for you, I'm out. What does he say? Here is life, now go into all the world and make disciples. When God gives a gift, it is a gift of involvement. As he, and as He gives the gift of His Son to us, among other things, it is the gift of participation. The kind of life that we find in Jesus Christ when we come to Him for life is a life of mission. It is a life of participation in God's purposes for His creation and for His world. We talk about making Jesus a part of our lives. 
That is the wrong way around. We don't make Jesus a part of our life. He makes us a part of His. He makes us a part of the work that He is doing in the world. Are you merely looking for life from God? Or do you come to Jesus looking for a life for God? As you consider the baby in the manger at all those nativity sets, is that just something that you receive as entertainment? Or does it lead you to a desire to participate in the mission of that baby? Of why Jesus came to this world? Would you take some time over the next couple of weeks and not only remember what Jesus has done and be grateful for it. That is so important and good. Do that. But don't stop there. As you are grateful for what He has done, ask, how should that gratitude lead you to participate in what Jesus wants to do in your heart, in your work, in your relationships, in your family, in our city? How can we, following Jesus, give ourselves to His purpose, to His mission for this world, for our lives? When my relatives told me I needed to get a life, I I don't think they understood um, the life that I have. I don't don't think they understood that, that my time in the practice room, all of those hours in the practice room, they weren't begrudging duty. It wasn't hard discipline. The reason that I spent all of those hours in the practice room is because it, it enabled me to participate in something beautiful. And that is exactly the work of Christ in us. As we come to Him for life, we find a song. It's the song of Hannah. It's the song of Mary. It is a song that we hear, that we receive. But it is also a song that Jesus leads us to sing. And He calls us to participate in His work of beauty. So will you have ears to hear and to be grateful for the life that you find there? And will you add your voice to the song? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this story. We marvel as we consider the Bible of what you have given to us. Story of of redemption, of renewal, of forgiveness, of new life. And so we thank you for the work that you did in Hannah. And through her, the work that you did in your people leading us to Jesus. The work that you have done through your Son in our hearts. Would you help us hear these stories and these songs with faith? A faith that leads us to gratitude, but a faith that also leads us to obedience. That the work of your Son... gives us forgiveness 
but it also invites us into a life of forgiveness, a life of grace and truth. And so would you help us uh, to hear and to sing? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.